Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello and welcome back to the Prospect Podcast, where we speak to the brightest minds and talk about the ideas that matter in politics, arts and society. Today I'm delighted to hold a Prospect Conversation where we ask, was austerity worth it? And joining me today to discuss and debate are former Treasury Chief Nick McPherson and eminent Keynesian economist Anne Pettifer. So we're sitting here, I'm going to set the scene. I'm Alan Rusbridger. I'm sitting opposite my colleague Alex Dean. And to my right is Nick McPherson, who ran the Treasury for staggering 11 years and was there, I think, from 2005 to 2016. And on my left is Anne Pettifer, who is economist, government consultant, is that right? A writer, one of the few to predict that the economy, the world economy might get into trouble in 2008. So we're here to talk about austerity. And maybe, Anne, you can set the scene by just telling us what caused austerity. And you were one of the first people, one of the few people who could have told the Queen that you did see it coming. But can you just talk about the crash? Well, what caused the the crash, it seems to me, was the deregulation of the financial system and in particular the shadow banking sector and and really the uh, unsustainability, if you like, of the credit that had been issued at very high real rates of interest over time and were ultimately not repayable. And, you know, that... People often refer to the, the American housing market as being the cause of the crash, but the real cause of the crash was the issuance of credit to to those who couldn't afford to repay ultimately, and especially when interest rates rose. And that, to me, was the cause of the crisis. And why was it obvious to you that this was coming, but so many clever brains didn't see it coming? Mainly because I was watching global debt, private and public debt, because my work had been on sovereign debt. My background was in the sovereign debt crisis. And it's about whether or not that debt was ultimately going to be repaid. And it was clear that it wasn't. At the time, total debt was about 250% of global GDP. Today, it's about 340% of global GDP. And in that sense, it's still unsustainable and it is still going to take a crisis which is why I think I'll share with Nick a, a commitment to the stabilisation of public finances and public debt. I don't believe in excessive deficits and, and, and very high levels of debt. So, Nick, you're sitting in the Treasury around this time, and the, the period that we now refer to as austerity was on your watch. For younger listeners, uh, because you were there at the time, what, what was austerity and why was it necessary? Well, the financial crisis um, took a huge amount of productive capacity out of the economy. I mean, whether that capacity was sustainable, um, who knows, some of it was definitely froth. And where we found ourselves back in 2009-10 was looking into a future where the economy was going to be about 15% smaller than we expected. And we had spending commitments which reflected a view of future growth which was no longer sustainable. So something had to give. I mean, that year, I think the government ran a deficit of 10%. 
of national income. Um, and in those circumstances, it's not that you need to suddenly, um, uh, you know, return the, the, the budget um, to balance, but you kind of have to be able to demonstrate that you've got a plan in the medium term to get the deficit to a level which looks um, credible um, to uh, the markets and others. So in the case of um, going back to 2008-9, the the response to the crisis initially, quite rightly, was to support the economy. Alistair Darling cut VAT. But um, by late 2009, um, he was focusing on a plan which would cut the deficit in half over a four-year period. Um, an election then took place. Um, George Osborne uh, wanted to adopt a more ambitious approach. But I think more importantly, and this is relevant to the term austerity, um, Osborne was determined to use spending reductions um, rather more aggressively um, than, than Darling was. And, and at the same time, um, to um, not increase tax as much as was in the Darling plan. I mean, the term austerity, which I suppose harks back to the 1940s and the, the years of Stafford Cripps and rationing and so on, was, I think, coined by David Cameron and George Osborne. They made a virtue of this term. I mean, look, I was a civil servant at the time, so I, I don't have strong political views. I think it's fair to say the official Treasury thought that the deficit did need to be reduced because we weren't going to get the growth. Um, you know, we could have done it in different ways. It didn't need to be labelled as austerity. It was a matter of political choice. Um, who bore the burden of um, the fiscal consolidation? And I think people often get mixed up. I think that I think there are two issues here. One is if you if you are going to um, reduce a deficit, how you do it, and who who bears the cost of it. And I think it's fair to say that at that time, the less well-off in society perhaps bore a greater burden um, than than was desirable. But the other, the other issue is, you know, is fiscal consolidation sensible? And there's been a huge debate since about how by seeking to reduce deficit too quickly, that affected growth. I actually don't believe it did affect the performance of the economy very much. What affected the performance of the economy was the Eurozone crisis, which um, kicked off in 2011-2012. And um, the disruption in our main market, uh, namely Europe at that time, I think did have an effect on the economy. But by 2012, you know, uh, average real earnings had collapsed over two years, massively. And um, and that was one of the reasons why employment increased, because average earnings collapsed at the lower level. And lots of people who were struggling, uh, not, not just with falling earnings, but also falling public services, were forced into work. Um, and that improved employment. But really what was happening is incomes were falling by 2012. So I think it's a bit unfair to blame it on the eurozone crisis i think and i i don't want to say this i completely accept that these were political choices and that george osborne was one of the most political chancellors we've ever had but but the fact was the matter was that underpinning his political choice was an awful lot of economic theory of expansionary fiscal contraction for example Alicina's paper and Ken expansionary Rogoff. fiscal contracts. Does that mean that you, by cutting spending, you help the economy expand in some exactly. ways? It's counterintuitive. Yes, that sounds. was what was meant, and that was what was was argued, and that was argued by economists and very distinguished economists as well. So I don't always blame the politicians. Um, I think the big problem is with the economics profession. 
So, and I think we have to face the fact that we made decisions. I mean, I think where um, we're going to disagree is in uh, an understanding that actually government spending can't do much to expand the economy. Um, and in fact, you know, the way I look at the crisis after 2007-9 was that Alistair Darling and uh, George Osborne believed that actually uh, in, when the private sector, when the economy as a whole uh, plunges uh, and, and, and drop, you know, a massive amount of growth uh, collapses, then you know, the government must reinforce that by cutting government spending, where actually at that moment, that was the moment for the roaring lion that is the government, to use Mariana Mazzucato's term, to intervene in the private sector, in the economy as a whole, to revive the economy. But when government decides to amplify the, the failure of the, of the private sector, if you like, by, by, you know, contracting the public sector, then you'll get the sort of sustained uh, uh, slowing down of the economy that we've had since 2009. Nick, I remember there was was talk at the time of um, public spending crowding out private spending. Is that a mechanism that you you accept? Um, But it would tend to be the case when you're at full employment and the economy is running very hot... I don't think um, there was much risk of um, crowding out happening back in in 2010. I mean, where 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 I agree disagree with Anne is I real wages um, have have indeed stagnated for a long period, but I in in practice there's very little that the public sector can do about that. That in the end reflects. Um, productivity changes in the wider economy and you know look the government could have spent more in 2010 but I don't think it would have made much difference to the performance of the economy the independent office for budget responsibility has um, estimates of the sort of Keynesian multipliers are quite are quite low so that's that's the idea that by spending you get more bang for the buck, you get more back than you spend because of the growth-enhancing effects. I mean, mean, the thing about Britain is we're a very open economy. So Keynesian interventions can work well where the economy is relatively closed. Um, So in the United States, those sort of interventions actually are, can have quite a sizable second-round effect. In Britain, the spending tends to go into imports and um, it may benefit the Bavarian car industry, but it doesn't seem to do huge amounts of good for Britain. I mean, where where I probably would agree with Anne is I think it's worth looking at the at the balance of both spending and taxation. I think historically this country's had a chronic see to underinvest, and I think you know. Protecting and indeed expanding public investment through that period would have been um, money well spent. I also wonder whether you know cutting the benefits of the poor um, is terribly good economics because the poor tend to have a higher propensity to consume. And I think looking back on it, there was definitely a case for the better off bearing more of the burden, but. I still don't believe that had we, let's say, run a deficit of 5% a year higher through that period, it would have made much difference to the performance of the economy. And we would now be stuck with even more debt than we currently have. I really think I really have to disagree with that, really. For me, the debt and the deficit is a consequence of economic activity or economic inactivity. Um, you know, this is what we get when we have a weak economy. This is what we get when we have high unemployment or very low incomes. Um, we get high public deficits. When the economy is returned to prosperity, to full employment, if people were paid decent higher wages, they would pay more taxes, tax revenues would rise, and the books would be balanced. So our problem it just seems to be, and can I just say that I deeply resent the 
the the attribution of government spending tax spend tax and spend to Keynes. Keynes was very, very clear that the thing you had to fix, first of all, was the monetary system and the financial system. And if you didn't, if you made Britain such a very open economy that we lose all control over fiscal levers, then you're, you're being an idiot, really. And uh, so he was, he was concerned with fixing the monetary system. And he said, once you did that, you know, you know, the public sector would look after itself. And I think it's a way in which Keynes has denigrated to turning into the Keynesian response to a crisis is to spend, is for more government spending. He he never wanted you to be in that crisis. The reason we were in that crisis was because we let go of all the levers that managed the financial system. And we did that recklessly throughout uh, the, the 1960s and 70s after the collapse of Bretton Woods, and very deliberately, you know, Wall Street, effectively, in the city of London, took over and, and, and made, you know, were, the, were determining the major um, uh, levers of the economy, the rate of interest, the currency exchange rates, and so on and so forth. And so Keynes is very clear, until you fix that, you couldn't really hope to fix the public finances. I'm sorry to rant and rave about this, but I do get very cross when people talk about Keynesian policies as if they were just about fiscal spending, you know. I mean, that is, that's as may be the problem which all governments face is that there are always inflection points where if you borrow too much, you suddenly find that the cost of borrowing begins to go up. Um, uh, that's happened with Liz Truss. Well, well, I was just about to come on to that. I mean, it happened in the in the mid seventies. Actually, it almost happened in the early nineties. I think um, until Liz, Liz Truss and Quasi Kwarteng came along, there was kind of an assumption that actually, when governments got into fiscal difficulty, what happens is you simply devalued your way out of it, and the pound took the strain. And so actually for quite long periods, interest rates seemed completely immune to what governments did. But the trust episode is a reminder that there there are these inflection points where suddenly the markets can lose confidence in the government. And if you're in the Treasury, that is your biggest fear, quite frankly. You don't want to go there because once you've lost credibility the price is very high indeed. I mean, one of the reasons why the government has had to tighten policy so much in Mr Hunt's um, autumn statement is because he's got to try and convince the markets that this moment of madness was temporary. And um, and so, so there are costs from uh, letting your deficit and debt um, rise at too fast a rate. But the point is this, that so what you're saying, Nick, is that actually the markets, you know, are governing. The, the markets are running the show. Now, I'm, you know, highly critical of what Liz Truss tried to do, mainly because all of her spending was about tax cuts for the rich, and they were unfunded, and that was unsustainable, no question. I think the markets were dead right about it. But the fact of the matter is interest rates are not determined by the markets ultimately. When you have a central bank, the Bank of England steps in and, hey, presto, uh, you know, uh, QE, a new form of QE, and boom, the, the, the rates come down again. So, I, I mean, I, the, the, the importance of the role of the Bank of England in determining rates and, and the Federal Reserve and, and the ECB must not be underestimated. The, market, the markets actually can't find, fight the central banks. We know because from 2010 to 2022 – Interest rates have been so low as to be negative, really. And that was mainly, well, for me, that was mainly a function of the weakness of the economy, but also a function of uh, central bank decision making by human beings, not by the market. So, you know, I think in the, we can't use the Liz Trust episode as a way of saying, sorry, but we must give up trying to do something about our economy because the markets won't let us do what we want to do about our economy. And, and that, that's a sort of defeatism 
that economists are guilty of, which I think is so unfair to the people of Britain and to the economy of Britain and to the entrepreneurs of Britain. The difference between Britain and um, other countries, um, or certainly other countries which run large deficits, is that the British people tend, like the governments they elect, to over-consume, um, under-save and under-invest. Therefore, something like 30% of our national debt is in the hand, hands of overseas investors. Um, as, as Mark Carney once put it, we rely on the kindness of strangers to fund our debt. And so you do have to be sensitive to what those investors um, expect in terms of um, policy macroeconomic policy um you know it would be nice that we didn't have to rely on the markets but i don't really agree with you that the central banks set the interest rates which ordinary people pay yes they determine the short-term interest rate but faced with rising uh interest rates in the bond market they can indeed buy um, buy that debt themselves, and that's what um, the Bank of England did. But mm-hmm. if you carry on doing that, you end up like Turkey or Argentina with very high well, inflation. Well, so it is not a sustainable policy in the long term. And in the end, governments kind of have to demonstrate that they can live within their means. See, I, I don't disagree with you. I mean, I, I don't think... I think it's a tragedy that we have put ourselves in the position of being entirely, or not entirely, but to a very large degree, dependent on the kindness of strangers. But I disagree with you about investors. Investors want what you and I want. They want a prosperous economy. They want to be able to make money. They want to have some kind of certainty and they want some kind of stability. So, and I've learned, I learned this in working on sovereign debt. You know, It was so extraordinary in 1998. Russia defaults on her debt, defaults to the private sector, to global markets. And the day after the default, the investors piled back in again. Why? Well, because now Russia had a clean balance sheet and she had oil and gas. So they were going in there to get to, 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 to gain, to gain, to make capital gains. Um, and I saw that happen, you know, to Uganda and to other countries. Once they'd cleared their debt, the investors piled back in again, rather foolishly, I thought, because quite often the regimes hadn't changed and so on. But investors were just looking for opportunities. And I think what investors want from Britain is a prosperous economy, not one that has been what it has been since 2010, which is a just gradually sinking into the mud economy, really, with virtually no growth and with very high uh, and with cuts to real income and with, you know, um, with an unskilled uh, workforce. And, 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 you know, this tendency of economists to blame productivity, it seems to me productivity is a fig leaf. The fact is that we have low levels of productivity because we have low levels of investment. And the private sector is too timid, as, as Mariana often argues. They're a timid mouse when it comes to Mariana Matsukata. You know, they're a timid mouse when it comes to investment. They want to be absolutely sure of capital gains which is why government has to be the roaring line and to invest and to encourage and support the private sector. You know, so in the events, you know, of the private sector losing confidence in the way it very rightly did after 2007-9, that's when governments have to step in. And, and austerity was about no. <laughs> governments should should consolidate the crisis by cutting I'm, I'm, even further. I'm going to jump in as a timid mouse at this point <laughs> um, because I'm the least economically literate person around this table. But I guess the reason we're talking about this now is 12 years later, and it's particularly biting at the moment, it feels as though the state has been hollowed out, in, mm-hmm. to use a layman's language. <laughs> and we say, okay, George Osborne made these decisions. They were very political decisions. He didn't 
believe in a big state. And we're now seeing what that looks like. We see what it looks like in our schools, in our hospitals, in our transport infrastructure, police, probation service. At one point, 20,000 police were sacked, and now we're rehiring 20,000 police because we've decided we can't run the police force with that. So with the benefit of hindsight, I suppose lots of people are saying, well, was it wise to have cut the public services so savagely back then? Um, Nick, what's your answer to that? Um, I think that um, in determining policy, you need to look at the underlying pressures on the state. This is um, the period when demographic pressures which we've all been talking about for years have finally actually come into play we've got um, an aging population that's creating more demands on national health service more demands on social care and successive governments have um, implemented a, a triple lock on the state pension which is also creating quite significant upward pressures on spending and i mean i've always thought that um, this country needs to have a really honest debate about the size of the state. Um, you know, if you want to have a European-style um, welfare state, you probably need to have European levels of taxation. And this, the strange thing about the so-called coalition government is it was actually cutting taxes generally through this period. Um, Osborne first put a big emphasis on cutting corporation tax rates, um, perfectly sensible thing to do to create a conducive environment for investment. But the Liberal Democrats were also focused on increasing the personal allowance of income tax. So it, the result of that was that taxes contributed even less to consolidation than I think originally planned. And um, we do, um, I think, need to think through um, the implications of um, uh, education, um, skills, um, public investment, and so on. So Taxes are going to have to rise. I mean, I spent many years advocating a health and social care levy. Uh, Mr. Sernak finally, I mean, finally introduced one, albeit imperfectly designed. Um, but that was the one tax cut um, Liz Truss implemented, which they've kept in place. I think the government's going to regret that because all the pressures on spending are upwards. And somewhere, somehow government is going to have to find some way of funding that spending. But you see, this is where we disagree, Nick, I think quite vehemently here, in that I mean, the way you're framing this is as if taxes pay for public spending. Taxes are paying for the state. I find myself here in agreement with George Osborne. In a slump, the very last thing you should be doing is raising taxes because by raising taxes, you're contracting the economy further. But we're not um, in a slump. No, but we were in 2010, right? Well, so, but just let me make this point. That, but if we start with the assumption that taxes pay for the state, I, I find that theoretically, you know, untenable because taxes are a consequence of investment and spending. They're not a source of investment and spending. When I go and get a job, I, I work for a whole month, and at the end of the month, I, I, I earn my, my salary, and then I pay taxes. Taxes are a consequence of my economic activity. They haven't funded. What has probably funded my economic activity is credit. Somebody's borrowed money to invest in employment and to invest in a company, and, business, and as a result, I'm working, I'm creating economic activity, and the end of it, I, pay, I, I get paid and I pay taxes. If, if, you, if you cut employment, for example, you will cut tax revenues massively. If you increase employment, you increase tax revenues. It's, it's, it's not rocket science, Nick. So but, this idea that you know, taxes pay for public spending is at the heart of austerity, and it's the problem with austerity. Well, I'm afraid 
I don't believe that you could pay for a European-style welfare state by borrowing a loan. No, but you pay for it by having a prosperous economy, by having full employment of highly skilled, highly paid people. I'm I'm very much in favour of full employment, um, and um, I'm very much in favour of growth. But I don't think the experience of the last 10, 15 years indicates that 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 public spending um, is the driver of of growth. What what is the driver of growth? Ultimately, a skill levels, investment, competition, innovation, all the ingredients of growth, uh, uh, which have very little to do with. Um, how fast public spending grows. I, I agree with you on that, except when we're in a, when the finance sector, the unregulated, largely unregulated and reckless finance sector, induces a slump. Then, you know, then there is a need for public investment. I mean, I would, I would rather that we didn't have a slump and we didn't have to fix the big hole in the, in the economy. But when you do, that's not the moment to consolidate, to dig the hole deeper. After the break, we'll dig deeper into this debate. If you enjoy our podcast and would like to consume more of our journalism, we'd encourage you to subscribe. A subscription unlocks full access to Prospect content across newsletters, web, app and print. And right now, a subscription to Prospect costs as little as £1 per month. Visit prospectmagazine.co.uk and subscribe now. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems. But getting therapy has its own problems, too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and, of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Nick, um, just going back to what you were saying, take public investment and public spending, say education, or surely uh, that, you, you mentioned skills. I mean, surely if the state spends more on education, that boosts skill levels and that sort of enhances it sets us in this virtuous circle of higher productivity. Oh, yeah, no, I, I, I fully accept that some spending is likely to improve productive capacity uh, more than others. And um, personally, at the current time, I would be prioritising um, skills in particular, given that we can no longer rely on the Central European taxpayer to fund, to provide our skills. Um, we've got to do it ourselves. Um, actually, from 2016 onwards, I would have been making that my number one priority. Um, and again, I think we've underinvested. I think we've invested in the wrong things. I think prestige vanity projects like High Speed 2, probably rather inefficient uh, use of investment resources. So there are definitely things the government can do. But in the end, what drives growth in economies is not the size of the public deficit. Um, you know, it, it can have some impact in the short run. And um, I agree with Anne that if you're in a slump, there's a case for using uh, fiscal policy to support activity. But we're not in a slump at present. And when we have 
the next general election, my guess is we will be in circumstances broadly as we are now. So whoever wins that election, I think, has to have quite an honest conversation about how you pay for your spending pledges. Something interesting that was laced through what you were saying, Anne, was this idea that if real wages are higher, tax receipts go up, and that has a beneficial effect on the public finances. Can you just talk about that a bit? Because that's, that is counterintuitive, to, to I think, to the layperson, at least. Well, it's just that, you know, um, government, you know, this is my point about tax revenues are a consequence of economic activity. And, you know, we all know the more you're paid, the higher your salary, the more taxes you pay. Well, I mean, that doesn't always apply across the, across the board. Lots of people manage to make a lot of money without paying taxes. But but on the whole, across the economy, you know, for me, the best way to raise taxes is to raise employment and to repay, raise, you know, skilled, well-paid employment. That way you get more tax revenues. If you choose to increase taxes in a slump, you're actually taking um, more money out of The government is taking more money out of the system when actually at that moment we need more money in the system. I always love the quote from Keynes when he he was in a debate on the radio. Keynes on the radio is really rather fascinating with Sir Josiah Stamp. And uh, he said to him, my dear sir, you know, you can't balance the nation's budget by cutting the nation's income, by measures which would cut the nation's income. You increase the nation's income, you you, you will balance the budget. You know, and that was the case in the 1920s and 30s, and it is the case now. And can I ask, just to go back to the hollowed-out state, if if you had been Chancellor in 2010, what, what would you have done about public spending, and how different would the state look now? And, and perhaps you can, perhaps Nick can answer the, what, what the likely consequences of your. But, but how would you have tackled public spending then? I would have worked closely with the Bank of England. Um, I mean, one of the tragedies of the trust thing was, the, you know, the sacking of Tom Scholar on the one hand and the failure to talk to the Bank of England on the other. And I would have worked with the Bank of England to borrow the money needed to for the for the government to invest, and I would have invested in employment-generating activity. I, w- I would have tried not to invest in things that weren't going to create jobs. I would have wanted to invest in infrastructure, which could be like HS2, delivered by the private sector, but essentially funded by the by the public sector. And, and I mean, what there are plenty of projects to choose from. My personal passion is to to have invested in projects would have protected us from climate breakdown, which is something, you know, we really have to worry about. We need flood defences. We need to uh, retrofit our housing. There's so much work that needs to be done. And I have to say that in 2007-8, I was part of a group that produced the Green New Deal report. And we did that because we could see the climate crisis coming and we could see the need for urgent government intervention to protect society from from that from the forthcoming climate crisis, so I would have invested in those things. And investing, for example, in the retrofitting of housing, is a labour-intensive type of investment, unlike HS2, perhaps, because you would need local builders, you'd need local construction workers, you'd need architects, you'd need plumbers, you'd need asterisks and that sort of thing. The, the, and all the, of that can be those done. sound like extra things. But what about the existing structures of the welfare state and? education and health, would, would you have been able to get away without cutting them? Absolutely. I would have made a, a point of, you know, improving, you know, to sort of to drag the economy out of slump. Yes, you'd have to have improved your and also to improve productivity. Uh, you would have had to invest in upskilling your workforce and uh, and improving education. And education is one of the great assets this this country country has you know it sounds so so sensible nick um it's it, I mean, that really suggests that 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 osborne's choices were completely political as opposed to being driven by the necessity of the moment i don't agree with Anne on this i think um if if we'd carried on 
spending um, as if the economy was a whole lot bigger than it was. We would have had to borrow a great deal. You have to actually go out to the markets and sell this debt. Now, if if you could persuade the Bank of England to buy the debt, um, effectively monetary financing, in the short run, you could probably do that without affecting the cost of borrowing. But that would then mean that um, that the degree of monetary expansion would almost certainly result in higher inflation. And um, the problem in these circumstances is that when debt starts rising, the cost of servicing it can go up often quite markedly. I mean, as we found in Britain in the last year, where debt interest has been by far the fastest growing program. And the problem in those circumstances is that debt interest then starts actually squeezing out the resources which are available to spend on rather more constructive programs but, but like Nick, health and education. But period 10, 2010 to 22, government could have borrowed at negative rates of interest, unprecedentedly negative rates of interest and could have you could that you government could have engaged in long-term funding of projects at you know at rates that were un, extraordinarily exceptional so to point just to the post trust period is a little unfair it seems to me we had 12 years of negative rates and um i just think you know to say that that wasn't possible at that moment to yeah, at that sure. time. I'm, look, I'm quite sure we probably could have invested a bit more during that period, but but to do it on a scale of say five to ten percent a year, I think would have raised questions about well, where is the nation's debt going? Yes, but the, um, the other point is this, that because of the way in which we've deregulated the financial system happily, and the Treasury has gone along with this and has the Bank of England, we now need government debt as a prop for the shadow banking sector. It's absolutely fundamental to the plumbing of the of the shadow banking sector, which you, but that is government debt, government bond. I, I, the promise to pay that a government makes is really the most safe and the most valuable collateral in the world, and it's used by the shadow banking sector. Uh, and that's sort of a huge edifice. In you know, people, institutions like BlackRock and, and, and Blackstone and so on don't go to high street banks to borrow money anymore because Gordon Brown has insisted that only £80,000 or £100,000 of that money can be guaranteed as safe. And so they, they operate outside of the, the, the high street banking system, if you like, in the shadow banking system. And that is where effectively money is created, and but money is lent and borrowed in what are called the repo markets, the repurchase markets out there. So, so what, what, what it is is an exchange of collateral, and the collateral is usually government debt in exchange for cash. So if a pension fund has got loads of cash, but I'm an organisation with collateral... I will go to the pension fund and say, can I swap my collateral for your cash because I need cash right now? And that's how the shadow banking system operates. And government debt is the, the fundamental plumbing of it because, you know, those engaged in that sector don't trust corporate debt uh, because the debt of corporations is not as safe, but they very much uh, trust and, and use uh, government debt. So the sovereign debt of the United States, Britain and Europe is very, very popular and very attractive to them. And without that collateral, God knows what would happen to the shadow banking sector. They'd have to rely on much more dodgy, if you like, corporate right. debt. Okay, so the, the, the government lends investors mo- or l- lends money. I'm trying to, I'm the, going to try. The government yeah. borrows money. So, sorry, yes, the, the government borrows money. Yes. The people it's uh, – and, and and, you know, in exchange, it, it has this money that it can spend on things. Um, but as an extra consequence of that, there's very reliable 
reliable guarantees of money that are, that are propping up these edif- edifices yeah. of the financial so when system. The, when the British government borrows money, it promises to pay over time at a rate of interest um, a re- repayment of the loan. And the British government is highly trusted uh, for repaying its loans. It's It's never defaulted on its debts. Like the ECB and the Federal Reserve, it's highly trusted. So this collateral that you hold is a good thing because not only do you hold this loan, but it's going to pay you interest every year. If you hold cash, it doesn't pay you any interest. Um, And furthermore, you can use it as leverage to borrow additionally. You can say, look, like you can say, I've got a house worth £200,000 and I can borrow another £50,000 against it in exactly the same way big corporations in the shadow banking sector use collateral to leverage additional borrowing. So it's an extraordinarily valuable thing to the City of London and it's extraordinarily valuable to our pension funds as well. They want to hold on to assets which are going to earn them income in 30 years' time and pay our pensions. And that asset is government debt. And that is why government spending and borrowing is also a very good thing because, in in a sense, you know, the government might be borrowing now, but I will get the benefit of that when I draw my pension in 20 years' time, or at least I already do draw my pension. So, So, Nick, do you think... Well, I I agree with Anne that that, um, British debt is highly trusted, and my concern is that we should keep it that way. Um, We've had a government this year which has really tested... Um, that uh, presumption, um, and we saw the consequences of it. So um, I do think in the end, every government has to be able to set out a credible plan around how, in broad terms, it's going to finance its spending. Now, that doesn't have to be all financed out of tax. Sometimes it might be financed quite substantially through borrowing. But it's got to be able to demonstrate that over the next five years or so, it can maintain a broadly stable um, both financial system but also um, system of public finances. And that's why, in the end, you cannot you know, spend your way out of every problem. Final question to both of you. I mean, we, at the moment we're we're coming up to our. I mean, we're 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 teetering on the brink of recession, if not in recession. We've got public services that are. Uh, I think everyone agrees on their knees. Uh, uh, we've got strikes. <laughs> we've got. I mean, everything is. It seems as bad as it is, it could be, really. Um, if you were back at the Treasury now, what would you be advising your, your um, well, yeah, what would you be advising? Well, I suppose the more inter- the, the interesting question, what would you be saying to an incoming Labour government about how they might well, think uh, about I th- I mean, look, look, The first thing I think um, any government's going to have to do is to sort out the strike issue. The fact is this government is expecting public sector workers to take a bigger real wage cut at any time in our lifetime. Um, In fact, a bigger real wage cut than when the armed forces mutinied in 1931 uh, because prices were at least falling in in 31 when the then government cut wages by 10%. So you've got to sort that out. Um, Thereafter... Personally, if recession strikes, um, interest rates are at 4%, I'd be expecting the Bank of England to use interest rate policy to support the economy in the short run. Um, The government should continue to invest in the nation's infrastructure. It probably is going to have to spend more in the medium term, particularly on health and um, social care. And um, I would be um, trying to persuade the government to come up with a tax policy which can fund that extra spending into the medium term. And then what what, what would your advice be at that? Well, I I want to agree with Nick. I think I agree with his article in the Financial Times about, you know, further cuts to 
incomes is just not sustainable. So I would think that would be a priority, is to raise incomes, and by raising incomes, to increase tax revenues and balance the budget. Well, I agree with Nick, has a very 2010 feeling about it, so that, that's probably a very good note on, on which to end. Thanks so much to Nick and Anne for joining us. If you enjoyed this podcast, then grab a copy of our latest issue of Prospect magazine, which includes a compelling piece uh, by Matt Dankona on how Fox wrecked US democracy, as well as a write-up of this conversation. We've also got Stuart Jeffries on how 15-minute cities have become the latest target for conspiracy theorists and a very moving diary from the Ukrainian editor Sevgil Musayeva on life in Kiev. And while you're here, why not subscribe to something slightly different? Prospect Lives is a monthly series of audio diary entries from our family of seven writers, including Sheila Hancock, Alice Goodman and Mike Brearley. It's a joy which will make you laugh, it could even make you cry, but it will definitely give you a snapshot of the lives of people who live differently to you. Just search Prospect Lives wherever you get your podcast or click on the link in the show notes of this episode. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to Quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.